Welcome, everybody. We are here today with John Phelan, economist at um, American Experiment. And John, you have just finished a, a really interesting paper that helps to explain why some people in some places do well and other people in other places don't do so well. What, what, what's it all about? Well, just to go back to, to where the idea comes from, you you go around Minnesota and there's a couple of things that you you talk about, you know, when you give these talks about the state economy. One is that, you know, I often argue that the state has bad economic policy and yet we have high incomes, you know, so uh, we, we're a state that some, something's going right. If it's not policy, something is going right um, that helps keep these uh, incomes up in relative terms. The other thing that struck me as well is that if you look at, say, employment ratios, um, which is a, a measure that's very highly kind of linked with median household incomes and measure of economic well-being. Well, basically, how many jobs people have got? Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the employment ratio it's it's how many people are there are in a in a state who are employed. So it's not you know the unemployment rate or something like that. It's it's not actually not either the uh, labor force participation rate, which includes the unemployed as well. This is purely and simply the number of people who are employed. And what you see actually is when you rank the states by these employment ratios, Minnesota and its neighbors are always up near the top, which is interesting. So Minnesota and like what? Minnesota and you see uh, Iowa, you see North and South Dakota, you see uh, Wisconsin's never quite as high up there, but it's always in the top 10, it's usually like 10th or something like that. Um, but the top five is dominated by Minnesota and its neighbors. Utah cracks this top list as well, which is an interesting point to discuss, I think, later on. But it struck me that when you look at two states like Minnesota and then South Dakota, which have very similar labor market outcomes in terms of employment rates, they they have these very similar outcomes, even while they have very, very different state economic policies. So Minnesota has some of the highest income tax rates uh, in the United States. South Dakota doesn't tax income at all. Um, and so, you know, it's, there must be something else that's driving these results. And so if you look at, if you're trying to explain, you know, the, these economic outcomes and you're trying to find these non-policy variables that drive that, which are important, you've got to think, well, what are they? Um, and so for a long time, I went around giving these talks and I would close my talks by asking people for suggestions, you know, answers on a postcard kind of a thing. Um, and then one day I was leafing through this report, uh, the geography of social capital in America, um, which was produced by a thing called the social capital project, which is run by the joint economic committee of Congress under the auspices of a guy called Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee. Um, and it's really good stuff. And what they do is uh, they have a, a ranking of social capital, all the states of, by, you know, by their social capital. And what struck me is when you look at a map of America, where lighter colored states have higher levels of social capital, there was just eyeballing it, a strong correlation with these employment ratios that we always had in our reports. So I wonder- so the states with the highest social capital, according to the social capital project run by, run by Congress, are Minnesota and its neighbors and Utah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Utah, Utah is a funny one. It's like a kind of Midwestern state that's gone rogue and it's wandered off down into you know, the southern part of the United States. Um, but it's, I mean, there's a lot to say about Utah actually as an example. Um, so what I wanted to do actually is, is to, to use this data, uh, the social capital index and think, well, it, it looks like a good fit. Is it really a good fit? And there's kind of all sorts of statistical tests you can do on that. 
Um, and what I do basically in the paper is I take the social capital projects data. They take this uh, social capital index and they did two. So they did one for the state level, one for the county level. And I use the county level one because that gives you 3,000 observations. It, almost every county in America. There's some various reasons you have to exclude. But you've got an awful lot of observations there. Um, and so when you do your you know, statistical tests, and there are four sub-indices, you know, family unity, community health, institutional health, collective efficacy, which is the crime rate. Um, and what I did is I took these and then did a, a regression against median household income. And again, this is, you know, uh, for, for 3,000 counties. And you do find um, a positive relationship between social capital and median household income. Um, if you look at these four sub-indices, family unity, community health, institutional health are all statistically significant and positively linked. Uh, collective efficacy is positive but not statistically significant. But those three are the ones that kind of matter. So what are they, John? When you talk mm. about family unity, I guess we, we can understand what that is. But you just walk through these. What, what are we talking about as these basic categories of social capital? Well, I'll, I'll talk through them in kind of reverse order. Um, so the first one is uh, institutional health. And um, what they kind of trying to measure there is uh, almost like the quality of government or something or people's faith and involvement in government or people's faith and involvement in institutions. So it includes things like the census return rate and presidential election voting rates. Um, now, you can argue, I mean, if you're looking at if your social capital is a local thing, um, are federal measures really the appropriate ones? Um, perhaps not. Um, and so I, I think that's an interesting point to note. Another thing is once you've noticed these relationships, you have to ask, are they causal? And the institutional health one is an interesting one because I don't think it is. So for, it's not a situation. But those things are proxies. In other words, you're not, you're not prosperous because a lot of people vote in presidential elections. A lot of people vote in presidential elections because they're rich, I think. I mean, that, that's, uh, if you look at other research, you do find that kind of relationship. And also, I mean, if you're looking at what, what can policy do about this, if you, you, I mean, you can't make a policy to make it more of a legal requirement to, re, to return the census, because it already is. Um, so the institutional health one you jettison, I think, at a fairly early stage. I do anyway. Um, and the correlation is, is, is not high either. You know, even if it was a thing, it doesn't make much difference. So then you come on to community health, which is an interesting one, because for a lot of people, this is really what social capital is. Um, social capital as a field, um, and this is, you know, I've talked a lot about the, the concept without necessarily describing what it is. Um, it really, a lot of it goes back to a guy called Robert Putnam, who wrote a book in 2000 called Bowling Alone. And it's a very famous kind of work of popular social science. It, it's, it's a social science book that's full of data that actually managed to be a bestseller. Uh, and in it, he argued that there was all this kind of community associational life uh, that peaked around the 1950s and 1960s and then un unraveled fairly rapidly after that. Um, and bowling alone actually uh, comes from one of the examples in his book. So the bowling leagues. You know, people would get together and they would form these leagues and they would hang out together and they would bowl and bowl against each other. And what Putnam said isn't that people had stopped bowling. He said there were more people bowling in 2000 than everywhere before, but they weren't doing it in leagues. They were just turning up to bowling alleys and just shooting things down on their own. So that's where the bowling alone thing comes from. And he used that kind of as his exemplar of uh, social capital. But what social capital really is, it's networks and norms of, so networks are, are how many people you know. And networks is a kind of quantitative measure 
Um, and it's also kind of neutral, you know? So uh, like a criminal gang, um, you know a lot of people, right? Um, and I, I talk in the, I mean, criminal gang is a kind of classic example. I try to be a bit different. I use the example of pirate ships from the 18th century. There's a wonderful book by a guy called Peter Leeson called The Invisible Hook, um, which looks at pirate ships and, and how they were run and found that there actually was a fair degree of what you would call social capital on board a pirate ship. Um, so, for example, uh, the, the, the captain couldn't just make you walk the plank for anything. Um, and it was possible for his crew members, actually, to, to complain about the captain and convene a, tri- uh, like a panel of a jury or something. Um, so there are all these rules. Now, they were, they were not legal, obviously. There was no court of law that you could go and enforce pirate justice in. But they were binding laws within the community, um, which I think is a really important point. But like I say, the, that point is, is it's quantitative, how many people you know, but it's, neg- it's neutral because it can be good or bad. You know, like a factory can produce either, you know, like a, a combine harvester or it can produce a tank, which is not to say that tanks aren't very useful sometimes. Um, but you can put these things to good or bad uses. Um, the other thing, uh, so that's networks. The other aspect is norms. Now, norms are qualitative and non-neutral. So norms aren't about a number, how many people you know. They're about the things that you believe and the beliefs that you share. And this is a, you know, perhaps a controversial point, though it shouldn't be. Now, this is an interesting thing, actually. If you look at an awful lot of pseudo-social science literature, there's this idea that any difference in dis- or any disparity in outcome between groups of people or individuals has to be because of, say, racism or sexism or something like that. Whereas if you're a scholar working in economic growth, it's very, very standard, um, based on a huge body of empirical literature, to say that these disparities in outcome are actually because of disparities in things like norms. And so that some countries are richer than other countries because they have different norms to other countries. And furthermore, that some norms are more conducive to economic growth and economic well-being than other norms. Like, like what? Um, well, Odeh Galor, for example, he's an Israeli economist. Um, I think he's probably going to be a, a future Nobel Prize winner for his unified growth theory. Um, but he's got a wonderful book um, just a, a, little, a, a little while ago um, in which he talks about... Um, uh, he actually lists some of these norms, and they're things like um, f- uh, time preference, so being able to invest, being able to defer consumption to the future. You know, um, it's actually interesting. You do see that that's a, a, if you look at immigration, that's something that persists amongst immigrant groups. They tend to bring their uh, attitudes towards saving over from the old country to the new country. Um, another thing is trust. So trust's a big part of social capital. Societies that have more trust you know, um, actually have better economic outcomes. A good example, for example, um, is Sweden. So there's an incredible amount of trust in Sweden. In fact, if you look at, if you rank all the countries in the world by the amount of trust they have, the Scandinavian countries are so far ahead, it's not even close. And so that helps to explain why they have persisted in being quite prosperous, even though in some cases they've had pretty lousy governments. Absolutely, yeah. And what's interesting about the Scandinavian countries is that if you look at um, other European countries like Britain and Italy, for example, the levels of trust in Britain and Italy are closer to the levels of trust in, say, Mexico, which is a really relatively low income country, than they are to the levels of trust in Norway, Denmark and Sweden and Finland. N- the Netherlands is another one that's kind of weirdly up there with them. Um, so that's an interesting thing. I mean, and one thing that trust does, uh, just to put, be a bit more concrete on this, is so, for example, if you trust people, 
Um, you can do a lot more, you can do business with a much wider range of people. If you don't trust people, look at a country like Italy, for example, where levels of trust are lower, you have much more family owned businesses. Um, and this is because you can only really trust your relatives, you know? Um, now that's, people might think, oh, family owned business sounds fun. And it kind of, I guess in some respects, depends on your family, I suppose. <laughs> but, um, but one of the things about it is it does limit your pool. So if you're looking to hire people and bring people into your company, um, if you're only looking around your family, it's a much smaller pool than if you're looking more broadly. And you will look more broadly if you trust people and you will look more narrowly if you don't trust people. Um, so that's one example, I think. Um, and so, what, like I say, you know, whereas the networks element of social capital is qualitative and neutral, the norms aspect, which is cultural norms, I mean, it's, it's the C word, culture, um, these are qualitative and non-neutral. There are some norms which are more conducive to economic health than others. I'll give you another example of a, of a, in a negative way. Um, and this is this does not connote any uh, moral judgment on these, by the way. It's purely based on economic outcomes. Well, I might make a moral judgment. You may. You may. Feel free. Um, <laughs> but let's see what they are. One example. for so, so, for example, if you look at the Twin Cities, um, we have very high disparities. I'm in Minnesota, Germany, a very high disparity, some of the highest in the country, in home ownership rates and wealth um, between, say, white and black residents. Now, one part reason for that is that Minnesota's population, uh, black population, has a disproportionate number of people from an East African background. And very many of them are Muslim. And there is a kind of cultural norm in, embedded in the Islamic faith, which is against taking or making loans at interest. Now that, and this is widely documented, that does actually stop you buying a house. It's, or it's a huge obstacle to buying a house anyway. And when you look at wealth in America, most of it is housing. Most of it is the house that people own. Um, so if you've got this cultural norm that says, I am not going to take out a mortgage, it makes it much more difficult to, for you to buy a house. It makes it much more difficult for you to accumulate wealth. And there is a source of disparity, which is not about racism or anything like that. It's about differing cultural norms. Norms do not need to be illegal to be suboptimal from an economic perspective. Fascinating stuff. So, so where, where does it go from there? So you've identified the major elements of social capital, and you did this whole statistical analysis of pretty much every county in the United States mm. to try to find out what's driving higher incomes, basically, right? Or what, to what extent this is, this is a factor. What, what did you find? Well, like I say, uh, you, so you have these, uh, the, the, the three that are positively and, uh, associated with median household incomes and statistically significantly associated. Um, forget institutional health, the community health one. This is more the Putnam stuff. So this is, um, you know, kind of religious congregations, the associational life. Um, if you think it's, it's kind of what de Tocqueville wrote about, you know, in the 19th century. Um, and it's, uh, and that, that's, this is an interesting one because there's a lot of debate as has that actually declined or not? This is a, an area that's been debated for a long time since Putnam wrote bowling alone, because there was a huge backlash against that book. People saying, well, social capital hasn't declined. It's just changed. <clears throat> so for example, um, people said, well, yeah, people aren't bowling in leagues anymore, but they're playing soccer in leagues in america and so what's happened there isn't that the social capital's declined it's just changed forms oh it, listen anything that shifts <laughs> to soccer is declining but but go ahead well tune in next week um <laughs> but uh but another aspect of this um so I'll give you a and, and this is a funny one actually because uh greenpeace for example i mean is this an, is greenpeace an example of social capital 
Um, and that was actually, Greenpeace was cited by some of Putnam's critics uh, because Putnam says that basically people don't turn up to neighborhood meetings anymore, um, you know, and, 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 and things like that. Union meetings where everyone gets together in the union hall and argues or something like that, or community groups. Um, people try to argue, well, yeah, no, that doesn't happen. What happens now is people join things like Greenpeace, the online, you know, petitions and all the rest of it. That's social capital. But Putnam makes a point, and I think it's a very good one, um, that they're not substitutes for each other. Um, the one is, or if the one is a replacement for the other, it's not a very good replacement. Um, so, for example, having lots of people come together and have a meeting or something um, is much more, there's much more social capital embedded in that than there is someone sends you an email, sign a petition, click, sign your petition, and you go off. Um, and actually, Putnam quite pointedly used the example of Greenpeace, which his critics had used at him, to show that when Greenpeace changed the way they did things in terms of sending out emails and bothering people, um, their engagement rates collapsed. And he said, well, that goes to show that it's not really social capital, it's just people being kind of prodded. The point is, whether you believe Putnam's right or wrong, or his critics are right or wrong, there is a huge debate over whether the community health measure of social capital has declined in America, or whether it just kind of morphs from one thing to another. The final measure of social capital, family unity, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that that measure has declined and declined precipitously in the United States in, the re in recent decades. And what's really interesting about that is that when you look at the relationships between these sub-indices of social capital, the median household income, family unity has by far the strongest relationship with median household income. And it's not even really close. So if you put all these elements of social capital together, how much of difference in differences from one place to another in median family income, how much do you find being accounted for by, by social capital? Uh, well, this is my R squared. To, to, you know, to be a bit technical, uh, we are an educational organization after all. The R squared value gives you that. Um, and so what I, one thing I do is I, I also I, I, um, account for whether the counties are rural or urban because that can be a big driver. So, for example, the crime rate, collective efficacy, um, that does tend to, that if you just do a straight correlation, that's positively correlated with median household incomes. But it's not the case that there's more crime in places because they're rich um, or that, you know, places are rich because there's more crime. They just, the rich places happen to be urban and urban places also happen to be where there's more crime. So there's this X factor, you know, or this, this hidden factor that's kind of off a confounding variable, you know. So you have to include for that, which we do. Um, and once you do that, you know, you, you kind of get the things you would expect to see. Um, but yeah, so, so your R squared value, which tells you how much of the variation in uh, median household incomes, your variables explain. I ended up with a R squared of over 50%, which over 3,000 observations is actually quite a lot. Wait a minute, that's astonishing. Over 50% of the variation in median household income across the United States is accounted for by variations in social capital? Yes. Of which by far the most significant is family unity. Yes. Wow. That is, that is a really, really interesting and significant finding. Um, I, and by the way, John, I mean, I think we, you know, the American Experiment, Mitch Perlstein, our founder, was writing about family breakdown 25, 30 years ago and correlating it to all kinds of social ills, which obviously are going to be drags on, on income. Um, and so in, in one sense, this is not new news, right? I mean, we people have known for a while that, that family breakdown is a, is a big problem, but 
seems to me that to actually quantify it as an economist mm. and have the data that 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 statistically will show the enormous influence of family unity on on family income uh, is uh, is really important. Yeah, I mean, economists are often loath to speak about things that they have they can't put numbers on, and I mean, I can understand that. Um, but sometimes you you know you, important things or things you have to understand to understand the world. Um, don't come easily quantifiable, you know. So capital stock go off and count capital fine, um, but it, obviously with social capital, it's a very different, dif- difficult thing. Um, so I do talk in the report, you know, about previous attempts to measure social capital, how they match up with the social capital index to the extent that they don't. There is a reasonable degree of overlap actually, which is which is kind of pleasing. Um, it tells you that you're kind of looking in the right direction. Um, but yeah, and and. Uh, it's absolutely interesting. You come back to this and you're absolutely right where you say that you do kind of come full circle and you are back at stuff that the center has really led the way on. And what's interesting about this, I mean, I, I drew very heavily in the report on a couple of Mitch's books. Um, the one about family fragmentation um, and the other one broken bonds. Um, and what they do is they draw the, the link between family breakdown and economic uh, bad economic consequences down the, down the way. Um, just give you a quick uh, example of that. So uh, it stands to ab- it obviously it's one of the most obvious things you can say is that if you've got a household with more people in it earning income, that household will have a higher income on average than a household that only has one person in it. Um, so it, it, this, this shouldn't surprise people. It, I mean, you're not saying anything shocking here. Um, what's really interesting, I mean, Mitch will tell you that, you know, he's got scars on his back from these debates over many, many years. And what's interesting is that this is a debate that seems to be having a time again. Um, so there's a recent book out. I review it in the current edition of the magazine, actually, by Richard Rees of uh, the Brookings Institute um, of Boys and Men, where he looks at all the various ways in which uh, young men in America are, are really struggling. Um, struggling in terms in school, struggling in terms of family breakdown, um, you know, they're absentee fathers to the extent that they are fathers. Um, and they're also struggling in t- economically, you know. The economy has changed in such a way that you know, the old manufacturing jobs that used to pay a good wage for unskilled work just aren't there anymore. And that actually, research does suggest that that feeds back into the family breakdown problem because men are less marriageable. So there's his book, but then there's also a new book out by, by Melissa Kearney, uh, The Two-Parent Privilege, which is an absolutely fantastic book. And I, I suggest anybody goes out and reads it. And she actually opens by saying that whenever she's gone to academic conferences and said, you know, the decline of two-parent households in America has been a huge economic problem. Everyone kind of shuffles their papers and scratches the back of their head and looks for the door um, because nobody wants to talk about it because you're seen as kind of, you know, wagging your finger in a moral, moralistic way. Um, and you can't necessarily avoid an element of that um, because you are talking about norms, social norms. Um, but at the same time, you can't ignore it because it's absolutely huge element of the economic story in America and not just the economic story. So many of the big debates that we have in America are tied to this. So, for example, family breakdown has been greater for people with lower incomes and people with higher incomes. Um, so you have there, you know, a driver of inequality, economic inequality. Family breakdown has been greater for people in minority communities, ethnic minority communities. So there, when you talk about these disparities in condition, there is another driver. Well, and it's, it's clearly correlated with things like drugs and crime. 
you know, yeah, those yeah. kinds of social ills. And things like the deaths of despair that you hear about a lot, you know, these you know, this fentanyl thing and all the rest of it, you know, um, Case and Dayton's book. Um, so there's an, it, it, it does, it's kind of a nexus that draws all these things together. And I'd say just as a final quick point, there's a book due out in February, I think, by a guy called Brad Wilcox. And I think it's the University of Virginia, the Institute for Study of the Family, which covers the same thing. You know, so this this is an area that that people. I mean, and Wilcox, I think, leans kind of right. Kearney is leans ever so slightly left, but people from across the the aisles now are recognizing this as the problem it really is. So I'm very pleased that this is an incredibly timely bit of work. Well, that's fantastic, John. Uh, when is it going to be out? When can our our listeners uh, try to try to read it? It is being worked on um, at the moment so that it looks all fantastic and, um, you know, eye catching and all the rest of it. But it will be it's all written. It will be done very, very soon. Um, so I would say no more than two weeks out and it will be on our website. Watch for it at AmericanExperiment.org. And that'll do it for today. Thank you very much.